Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. A place where anything goes and no subject will go untackled. Little disclaimer, if you hear any snoring or loud grunts in this particular episode, Nico, my dog, is sleeping at my feet during this and uh, she she's going to tend to uh, make a cameo from time to time. Tonight, I welcome radio personality, voiceover artist, and music producer, Christian James Hand. Mr. Hand, how are things? Uh, things are pandemic. Do you, do you see this ending any time? Do, do you see it ending any time soon, just in terms of the fear? I don't think that the pandemic's no. going to end any time soon, but is the fear going to end? No. I think that uh, I think that people, logical and pragmatic people, are going to continue to stay on the right side of fear until we have either a treatment that's proven or a vaccine that's been, you know, rushed to market but is proven to work. I think that's when the fear will go away. Um, you know, uh, I'm hoping that people will continue to stay indoors. Uh, 80% of this country says that it supports the stay-at-home order still. Um, you know, it's difficult for people like me because we live in a state that took it really seriously really early, so I don't know what blue states look like. I know that my parents, I mean, red states, I know my parents in D.C., their ward in D.C. is the worst ward, and they still haven't seen the peak yet. You know, we supposedly saw our peak a good a week ago, so we flattened it. But we were pretty flat to begin with. So who knows? Well, let's talk about festivals in North America. Do you think that the future of festivals is going to be hit by this? What do you think it looks like? And do you think that they, frankly, needed an overhaul even before COVID-19 even hit? Um, no, I think that, you know, one of the things that we can always count on for human beings is that they're fucking stupid so we'll you know we'll go back to what we were doing prior we'll be i would imagine what next year will look like what i would hope is that the the governing bodies would have learned from this and realized that shutting down pandemic response teams and getting rid of people whose jobs it was to over you know to watch over this kind of situation i mean we had this in America prior, we had it with Ebola, we had it with H1N1, we had it with uh, SARS, you know, prior to that, and none of those things reached even, you know, 10 people uh, because of the response that was put into place because we had uh, scientists and teams. So I think that, you know, I would hope that what would happen is that we would all learn the importance of science and the importance of science in policy. And that pandemic response teams will be put back in. The WHO will be overhauled, uh, and that the world will learn from this thing and make it safer for all of us. And that you know, certain countries they'll stop eating fucking bats. <laughs> That's that is true, but just in terms of like people, it seems to me, especially when people talk about just going back to live music, there's a lot of fear about it. What if an artist comes to you, one of your artists? What what is like your general 
just, I don't even know. What, what would you tell your artists, like, coming up? Do you think that they should go play big festivals? Do you think that they should keep it to Not smaller yet. shows? I mean, I would, I would be, you know, I, my, my show in L.A. Is, is 200 people because that's how big the room is. So right now, I would feel if people wore masks and we squeegeed their hands at the front door and nobody was shaking hands and hugging and all of that, I would feel completely safe putting 200 people in a room. Because, you know, we know how this thing works. We know what it does. We know how it transfers from person to person. Um, I think that's harder to do in a music festival. I mean, Burning Man has shut down this year, which is huge. I mean, that's 80,000 people uh, that, you know, that's now a festival that was supposed to happen in September that is or the end of August isn't happening now. Um, and as I say, I think once you have the, you know, once there's, once there's a treatment in place and this thing is understood, then people can start to gather because what happens now is that we have no treatment. So emergency rooms get completely overrun as they did in New York. And you end up, you know, with, with a situation where treatment is impossible. So, or what is impossible because we don't have one. So there's no way to deal with it. Um, but I think that once you have a treatment in place, which is hopefully, you know, within the next month or so, um, that seems to be the reports that there should be a treatment. Everyone's working feverishly for it. Uh, a vaccine is obviously further out, and flus are really hard to have vaccines for, even though COVID-19 isn't a traditional flu. It's a bit of a misnomer. Um, but, you know, the hope is that we would have treatments and a vaccine. And I think that once you have that, then it's completely, you know, people, you can do big music festivals. You can go back to 60,000 people in a fucking field somewhere. Um, you know, the fear is, is how do, well, the, the, the problem is, is how do we stop the next COVID? How do we stop COVID 20 or how do we stop fucking MERS four? You know, what is, you know, what do you do about that? Because those, this is, you know, to me, I look at this thing and I'm like, this is a fucking, this is a warning shot. You know, there's a great meme going around where it was like, you know, this is what happens when mother nature is, you know, proven to us that she's fucking pissed and sent us to our rooms to think about what we've done. Um, you know, this is a warning shot. If this was Ebola or, you know, Spanish flu, we would be seeing multiples of deaths and real, real fucking chaos. Um, this thing is remarkably benign, you know, and it's, it's killed a couple of friends of mine, so I'm not taking it lightly, but I certainly, you know, this thing is not nearly as, as terrifying as other pandemics and other things, the fucking, you know, the Black Plague, killed tens of millions of people so you know this thing is is benign but it's certainly a good warning shot of like what happens if the next one is a flesh-eating virus that is contagious through the air it can live on a surface for two weeks that you know you could get very quickly and be sick within days you know um my uh, best friend from high school was killed by a flesh-eating virus in three days you know, I mean, that's fucking, that's, that's unbelievable. That's horrible. That's a horrific fucking thing to think about. So this thing is slow moving. It sucks. It's killing people. Uh, and it should never have happened, but it is not the hard, you know, it's not a fucking science fiction movie. Um, and this to me is a warning shot of like, get your shit together, human beings, and work out what you want to do differently to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And if it does happen again, 
what is the containment that you build in so that we don't have to all fucking disappear for months on end. So I think you can, you know, there will be a future of sporting events and fucking music events and all that sort of thing. It's just going to obviously be very, uh, it's going to be a slow journey to that point. Um, but once we get there, then it becomes, you know, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again, ultimately? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Well, do you think that music festivals were bloated even before this happened? Do you think that something kind of needed to happen to them? It seems like the top 1% of record companies and the top artists were taking over all the large venues, taking over everything. They had first shot at everything. Do you do you think that this changed the music business? No, I think that the music business is changing the music business. You know, I, I don't, you know, the way I, I talk about the music industry is that I think that right now we're at that, you know, we're at the same point that, that they were when there were, you know, you see pictures of San Francisco where there were as many horses and buggies on the road as there were cars. And eventually, the, you know, the horses and buggies people were like, you noisy cars, and the cars people were like, we're the fucking future. You know, the new model is slowly revealing itself um, it needs to work out, you know, how it's going to really, you know, change in order to allow artists to have an easier time of it. Um, there's so much material. I mean, it's something like fucking 40,000 songs a week or something crazy get put on there or a day, like some absurd fucking amount. You know, it's like, how does, how do artists break through those, those pathways are being decided as we watch, you know, radio wither on the vine and the only place the people the bands can really you know make money now is live and through merchandise and that business model will work you know there are bands that are making really good livings now that are like how you know who the fuck is that person how is you know how is that how is that band making a living well they're making a living because they have a couple hundred thousand fans that keep them alive you don't need radio you don't need all those old bullshit models uh you just need a fan base and you get a fan base the same way you got a fan base prior. I think it's actually easier to get a fan base now than it was prior. It just looks a lot different than, than it used to. But, you know, most people forget that, you know, alternative bands, in quotes, weren't making fucking boatloads of cash and doing all that shit until Nirvana. And then Nirvana, you know, alternative became more alternative. And suddenly bands were getting signed for million-dollar advances that, you know, should have been in a van still touring for three years like the cure did and depeche mode and those things i mean they they built a career a career over the course of seven albums well once nirvana hit you could build a career off of one song off of one album and those were bloated useless fucking days so to me this is kind of a you know this is a this is a reckoning that was coming a long time and i, I think it's it's got a lot less to do with covid than it has to do with the internet and the flattening of the industry, rightfully so. I think the industry needed to be flattened for sure and needs more flattening, to be honest with you. Well, does it make you excited when you see artists like Billie Eilish just doing everything in her bedroom and just and breaking? Yeah, no, and... Well, here's the thing. No, because Billie Eilish is bullshit. <laughs> Billie Eilish was signed to a major label years ago and was carefully shepherded that story is manufactured that is not the truth she did she might have recorded that record in her fucking bedroom but it wasn't mixed in her bedroom 
It was, and she was developed. There was, you know, that was years it was put into Billie Eilish to make it look like a fucking overnight success. Not to take anything away from what Billie Eilish is doing. I think it's great, but I think there are other bands that are way more deserving of the praise of doing what everyone thinks Billie Eilish did. She was signed to a major for a few years before that record came out. So, you know, like that to me is not the, that's not the proof. The one that I love is, is Gautier. I mean, Gautier was literally done in a, in a fucking, it was done in a barn on a, on a fucking, you know, that record was a huge success. That song, you know, somebody I used to know was a huge success before he was even had a distribution deal in America. You couldn't buy that album anywhere when that song was on the radio. That was just something that grew completely organically. And that album is absolutely fucking brilliant. And that is a true, you know, uh, grassroots, internet-driven, tastemakers. You know, that, was, that wasn't even like an artist development. That was literally just a great artist with an amazing song growing organically the way they should. Billie Eilish is a fucking... Sh- that's a, that is a manufactured legend. That is not what everyone thought it was. No, I will... so, but it does. It is. Well, I will. I will say this: D- Does the myth of that make you make you positive? Because everybody seeing like and hearing that winning all the Grammys, do you find that more artists are gonna just do that now, and we're gonna get these quality doing... records from there? Even though it has been, been happening it. for a while. Yeah, I've been doing it. I mean, it's been going forever. Like all, all the, all that they did, which is typical of major labels. All they did was they took a, a pre-existing truth and turned it into a myth, which is what they do every single fucking time. You know, the the myth of Nirvana is not the same as the truth of Nirvana. The you know the the whole you know the, the this has been going on the whole time. I think that there are you know we in the music world have been in the music making world. I've been completely aware that you could make fucking sick sounding records in your apartment for years. You know, the minute Pro Tools was unveiled, it was like, oh, I don't need a major label fucking budget anymore. I can do this in my apartment and Ableton and all those things. I mean, they don't even using Pro Tools anymore. It's like Ableton and fucking Logic and that shit. So I think it might, the myth might get the kids in quotes to think it, but I think the kids already knew it. Uh, you know, to me, it's, all that did was, you know, it's the old people that were like, oh, my God, you can suddenly make a record in your apartment that can be huge, Linda. You know, the kids already knew. Okay. I want to I take you back a little bit now. I want to I go yeah. way back. What were some of the formative albums and films that helped shape you in your childhood and how did your time in Botswana and London at such an early age affect how you were indulging in this art? Um, the, the Botswana years are, are very early, um, from 60, basically 69 through 76. Uh, so I was a, I was a, I have more memories than I knew that I had. I sat down with my mom one day and we just sort of started running the tape to see what I remembered. And I remembered a bunch of stuff that I didn't think I'd remembered. Um, but I, the, you know, my, the thing that my dad, my dad is the biggest musical influence in my life. Like he never played an instrument, but he played a fucking really good sounding stereo system for as long as I've known him. He's an audiophile. 
and it really, you know, there was always music in my house. My mom was always singing. My mom was a folk singer. Um, so I think that they had, he had influences early on in that way, but I don't think the, I don't think the influences really took hold until I remember them taking hold once I moved to London because I was in London, you know, in 1977 through 1983, which is about as good a run of six years as you're ever going to get as a city. You know, like people compare it to the, you know, you could try and compare it to the roaring 60s, but I think it might even have been more uh, visceral than that because this was, you know, built on the back of punk and new wave. And but you also had ska and you had all of that shit. So there was new sounds are coming out of the radio every day synthesizers have been invented so suddenly you had everything from fucking you know craft work to the human league and that sort of shit so that those six years were amazing uh the records that my dad was turning me on to were you know tubular bells phil collins space value was a big one for me uh omd's orchestral orchestral moves in the darks uh, architecture morality hot space from queen i was a huge abba fanatic uh, also, Ian Dury and the Blockheads, uh, New Boots and Panties. This was the first album I actually bought with my own money. Um, and as far as film, film wasn't as heavy. I think that the, a big one where the two intersected was actually a movie uh, by Alan Parker, I believe. It uh, was called uh, Bugsy Malone. Yeah. Um, and that soundtrack and movie were fucking visceral impact. I think it was more TV in England because I wasn't seeing as many, although I did see, you know, I saw Star Wars in a movie theater in 1977, which just fucking caved my skull in. Um, but I think a lot of it was the TV that we were seeing. You know, we had Top of the Pops, which was basically a half hour version of MTV every Thursday night. And then it was Tomorrow's World, which was before that, which was like a magazine show that, you know, pointed all the new technologies that were being released. And uh, so there was so much of that in England that honestly, when I came to the States, I found definitely missing. Um, the America, you know, heralded itself as this future leaning country. And I came here and I was like, this place is backwards as fuck. Um, I think I was much better served actually by English culture than American culture for a while. Um, but those formative years of, you know, I mean, that was like seven through or seven, yeah, seven through 13. And they were huge, hugely significant years. I'm very, very lucky to have been given those years in London for sure. Uh, you know, everything from the Sex Pistols onwards, you know, it was just, I remember, I remember the first day I watched, you know, the first night the Sex Pistols were on top of the pops. And I remember just looking at that and knowing that, things were going to be markedly different after this fucking thing. You know, it just, you looked at it and it was, it looked and sounded like nothing you'd ever seen before. Similar experience of listening to Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit for the first time. You know, uh, a lot of these things have been absorbed by culture and we forget, you know, just what massive paradigm shifts they were. But for those of us that saw that, you know, firsthand, it was obvious from, from the first chord that they, you know things were going to be different from that point on. So the the film thing didn't really kick in for me. I think until America 
till I got to Long Island, I think, and then I started to, you know, absorb more film because I was in, you know, I was a teenager going out and seeing movies and going to the, there's a dollar movie theater at the top of the, the big hill in Port Jeff Station, and we would go there and see all of this crazy shit, and so much of it that I remember was, like, shot in L.A., so now driving around and, like, seeing the back alleys from Beverly Hills Cop and all that kind of shit is always, uh, I always kind of look at it and go, wow, it's fucking awesome that I've taken that journey from Port Jeff to Melrose where I can see what, where, you know, Eddie Murphy was driving down the, the back alley in the cop car kind of shit. So then also New York in the 80s into the 90s was amazing for music. You know, I was, I, I, I'd say that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have been involved up to my neck and in and to have been around such pivotal chapters of music and not seen it from simply the the bleachers but actually been involved in it you know electronica industrial fucking alternative all of it you know 90s radio was when i started in radio and i got so i got to really be really involved deeply in music hip-hop growing in new york like you know I would listen every Saturday night in high school, DJ Red Alert, DJ from the Red Zone, I think it was on KISS FM, from like 10 to 4, because the clubs in New York, sorry, closed at 4, so like six hours of hip-hop, and I would just sit there with my fucking tape deck and pause, record, and just grab shit off of his set, you know, and I'd hear it the week before and know to keep my tape deck ready for it the next week, and that was like, that was where LL Cool J and Nucleus and Run DMC and Curtis Blow that's a sonic like all that stuff like that was the real that was where i, I learned all about that stuff so were you doing so, a lot you of know, pretty were you doing a lot of tape trading in new york as well or were you just taping no, yourself I, I was the mixtape master i was just making mixtapes for friends and i was you know taping everything that my dad was bringing home and also, you know, our library had a service where you could, you know, go and get fucking records and CDs out when CDs finally came out. So I would tape those things. And there was also a, I believe it was, I don't think it was a Sam Goody. I thought it was, I think it was like records and tapes. It wasn't, it was some other fucking record store in the Smith Haven Mall that I would go to and spend too much money there. And then finally we got a record store in Port Jefferson, Port Jeff Harbor Sounds. Um, which was a play on the fact that the Long Island sound, so it was very, very fun, very smart. Uh, but my friend Paul Garofolo was one of the dudes that worked there, and I would go there and spend a lot of money on cassettes there. So I was really, I was, I was, I was sort of spreading the word myself and making mixtapes for friends and introducing my friends to more music than was being really brought to me because it's always been. Uh, priority like there was a show called Rock Over London that used to broadcast from Bridgeport I think um, across the sound because FM is line of sight so I could get that and so Rock Over London was a show I think it was like 7 o'clock on a Sunday night and it was basically all the new stuff that was coming out of England and then the, the top five songs were played at the end of it and I would sit there and that was another pause record thing where I was constantly and that was my tape for the week and then the next week, I'd get that tape for the week. So that show brought me a lot of English music that I wasn't getting anywhere else. Um, but then I was also listening to PLJ and getting all the fucking American roots rock and the classic rock and all the new stuff that was coming out in the 80s. You know, like, 
name it, GTR, Asia, John Cougar, Mellon Camp, all that stuff. And I, I was absorbed all of it like a sponge. I have no, I have no musical snobbery, which I put down to my dad as well. My dad is very similar well, do you, uh, in that his tastes are wide. Do you keep up with the music scene back in England now? Um, I, I mean, kind of, I, I will say that, you know, one of the, you know, one, you know, one of the things that they warn you about is that when, you know, your passion becomes your life, sometimes it can suffer more times than not, it can suffer. So my relationship with music is, um, different than it used to be. Um, I don't. I don't keep as active as I could, you know, uh, it's too much fucking work and I have so much music that I'm constantly, you know, I'm going backwards so much that really all I listen to in my apartment, honestly, is, is podcasts of people talking. And then the, the most music I listen to is, uh, in my car. And then it's either Spotify playlists or, you know, your fucking musical recommendations for the week, which generally are fucking garbage. Like, There'll be 60 songs and I'll find three I like. Um, but that's, you know, that, that's kind of how I discover music now is literally through like the Discover Weekly playlists on Spotify. And I find those horribly wanting most times. But, you know, you still find cool shit. A friend of mine just sent me the brand new Car Seat Headrest album, which is fucking might be my record of the year uh, for 2020. Um, but I don't, I'm not as active in finding new music as I used to be. And I, 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 I don't know how I feel about that. Well, do, you, do you keep a collection up? Like, do you have a ton of vinyl CDs tapes still? Yeah. I just actually spent the last two weeks on Instagram live. I got so bored that every day at nine 30 in the morning, I've been Instagram living, walking through my CD collection and my vinyl collection. Um, I don't, I think the last CD I bought was last year. I bought the new Third Eye Blind record which is called Screamer, which is a fucking fantastic album. That was my album of the year of last year. Um, but generally things have to be really good for me to buy them. It was easier for me to buy CDs and to want them when I had a fucking CD player in my car, but I bought a new mini and they don't even have fucking CD players anymore. And I went as far as like buying a fucking CD Walkman and having it fucking usb into the thing and it just sounded so fucking terrible that i was like all right i guess i gotta get a spotify playlist uh spotify account so that's how i keep up in quotes so my cd collections you know stagnates because it maybe gets two or three new new cds added a year um but it's you know i have probably close to five thousand cds and maybe six or seven thousand records um and, you know, I would, they will eventually line the walls of a really cool listening room that I will have somewhere. Um, but I don't keep, you know, my iTunes collection is now bigger than my CD collection. Um, switching topics a little bit. Do you think American artists put a little bit too much focus on being visually stimulating? Do you think that the current filmmakers are also being a little bit more interested in just being like visually appealing as opposed to telling like great stories, um, I think the you know to me it's pretty obvious that we are now in the golden age of television. I mean, there are, and especially you know in the pandemic, like the things that I'm watching that are that I'm seeing now are light years ahead of 
anything that you see in the movies, to be honest with you. You know, I think the the uh, the Sopranos, Breaking Bad, fucking The Wire, you know, they set the bar really high and, you know, now you can explore storylines for years instead of it being an hour and a half. So I think that, that to me, film has sort of hit a fucking bit of a brick wall, to be honest with you. Um, I think TV is infinitely more exciting. I think that, I think the opposite, I think that one of the, another nice thing that's happened with the sort of democratization of music through the internet is that bands you now see where you're like, you know, like, how the fuck did, you know, did the, the fucking ginger-headed English kid become a fucking huge rock star playing a fucking acoustic guitar? Because this shit is badass. Would that have happened in the fucking 80s or the 90s? Probably not. You know, like there's bands that I see now where the aesthetic is so less important. You know, it's it's so much more, it's so much indier and more cred to just be who you are. I see more artists now that look like Christopher Cross than I do that look like fucking Duran Duran. I think that hip-hop is suffering the, that fate. I think the visuals in hip-hop have become much more important than the music itself, unfortunately. But, you know, I think that's part of the natural progression of an art form, is that once it once commerce really gets involved, things always get fucking bent. But I still think there's cred. I mean, you know, the, the big, obviously the big fucking marker of that is Kendrick Lamar getting the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, that's that's amazing. Like, that is a that's a truly, that's a pivotal moment in you know hip hop as a as a legitimate art form, so I think that I think rock is sort of lost at this point, um, and I, but I do think that the most ground is being broken in hip hop as far as sonics are concerned, um, and I think EDM is suffering a little bit of a like what the fuck do we do now that we've dubstepped ourselves into a corner. You know, and we've multi-genred ourselves to the point where, you know, everything is so fucking siloed. Um, but I think that, I think we're primed for a, a, a rock and roll revival, and I, I think it's coming. So you don't think that rock is dead? No, rock will never be dead. Rock will never be dead. There's always going to be some kid somewhere who picks up an acoustic guitar and puts on the fucking first Ramones record and goes, yeah, I want to do that. Do you okay? It's just something. Do, do you do you think that the Ramones would be the single most influential band in the history of rock? No, it's the Beatles. Okay, why? Because <laughs> uh, they did everything first. <clears throat> you know, I mean, as far as I mean, Elvis Costello is. I mean, Elvis Presley is is the first the first dude to really rip off the black guys and make rock and roll out of it. But as far as, you know, every other thing being done for the first time, it's the Beatles. You know, I mean, their, their, their nine-year span, which is eight years, really, um, if you look at that artistic growth, they accomplish everything. I mean, they go from fucking sugar pop of please, please me to fucking Sergeant Pepper's through that to the grungiest fucking grindiest blues influence what the fuck are you doing of the white album and soundest collages and that sort of shit and every mythology that we have in rock and roll now you can you can 
draw it back to them every single time. You know, I mean, the the Ramones are really important as far as the as far as the breaking of everything. But I would still say that the Sex Pistols are more influential than the Ramones. For sure. I think the Ramones are the most influential of those bands, of the punk bands coming out of the New York Dolls to those guys. But it's what the Sex Pistols did with the Ramones that changes so much musical history. I mean, I don't, have you ever seen 24-Hour Party People? Yeah, it's fantastic. So it's fantastic, and you just look at that, right? That first Sex Pistols gig in Manchester at the Free Trade Hall you think of who's in the room out of the, what, 25 people that were in there? Half of them go on to become hugely musically important in England and thusly export out hugely important things to the rest of the world, including America. You know, the, the, the Ramones didn't have that effect. They had a ripple that had that effect. Do you feel like bands like The Damned and just that other visceral side of the punk that was happening at that time didn't get the kind of recognition that it maybe deserved? Uh, It's funny you bring that up. I just watched that damned documentary last night. Um, Yeah, I think that all of the things that they pin, you know, it's so funny that, you know, like this is one of those, uh, if anyone who comes to my shows, my live shows regularly knows that I'm, I'm convinced that human life is, a a television show that's being binge-watched by a bunch of aliens on some fucking quantum uh, level that we can't see, and they just fuck with us occasionally see if we'll believe it. I mean, you know, like the fact that the damned are called the damned, and then they've pretty much been damned to an existence of being a hugely influential, massively important band that's got none of the fucking success and or accolades and or money that should have come with being a band of that significance. You know, like there's a, there's a, uh, there's, there's something to be said for being a pioneer. You know, I was, when I was in the internet, I was working at a place called Soundbreak and somebody at a meeting said, you know, I mean, we're pioneers and the guy sitting next to me who actually used to run Surf Dog Records leaned over and he, uh, he whispered in my ear, like said low into my ears, like, yeah, there's a fine line between being the Donner Party and being a pioneer. And it's true, you know, the, the damned were the Donner Party. The Sex Pistols were the fucking pioneers. But the damned get signed first. They put out the first punk record. But the Sex Pistols just had, they had everything that you needed. I mean, they really did. You look at, you know, like the part of the, you know, part of the, the interesting thing about that damned documentary is when they talk about how the damned were the band that sort of showed you that you could have fun and make punk rock records. Well, that you know, like that's not what put punk on the map. What put punk on the map was the fact that it was two fingers to the whole of culture. And if you were going to have that guy, there was nobody better to hold two fingers to fuck in the face of popular culture than Johnny Rotten. Would, would you also put the Buzzcocks in this category too, of just bands that never really got the respect that they maybe deserved? I would say that I, I think that the Buzzcocks got more respect than the Damned. I think the Buzzcocks I agree with got that. just about the. I think the Buzzcocks got just about the right amount of respect. Honestly, because they're like Nick Lowe to me. Like Nick Lowe gets just the right amount of respect for being Nick Lowe. 
Fair enough. Well, okay. Well, what? Let, let's right. let, let's switch to America for a second. Do you think bands like um, the Germs got the respect that they deserved? Yeah, I think all of the American punk bands got the respect that they deserved. Okay. I think that you know, if you look at the place that that uh, Henry Rollins now occupies, that's exactly where Henry Rollins should be. The Ramones got to exactly where the Ramones should be. You know, the Ramones were. The Ramones were perfect, but they shouldn't, they, you know, they weren't supposed to be Nirvana. They were supposed to be the fucking Ramones. And they did it flawlessly. The New York Dolls were supposed to be the New York Dolls. You know, like each of these bands pulls this thing off. Like the Ramones to me are like, you know, the ACDC of the punk world. And they made it to just exactly where they needed to make it to, to become the Ramones. Nobody doesn't know the Ramones. But, you know, the Ramones shouldn't have been multimillionaires. If the Ramones were multimillionaires, they wouldn't have been the Ramones. That's 100% correct. <laughs> you know, they would have, like, you know, the reason that the Foo Fighters are the Foo Fighters is because they're multimillionaires. Now, okay, I, I have just a random question then. Do you think that the Foo Fighters would have, like, come to be if not for Nirvana breaking? No, no way. I mean, you know, it's like Dave Grohl clearly wanted to be the lead singer in a band from the minute that he started. Most drummers do. Most drummers are frustrated frontmen. Um, and, you know, had, you know, Dave Grohl was the, Dave Grohl was the least involved in the fucking, the, the Nirvana mythology than any of the other guys in that band. He was a late, he was a late arrival to the fucking story. You know, so... He was precisely the dude that should go on to become the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. I mean, he's made for it. He was never, you know, he's he's got his own version of cred, but he was never going to be as cred as fucking Kurt. Ever. That's why Kurt had to die. Kurt had to prove that he was cred. Okay. And not prove, he didn't, he didn't kill himself to prove it, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that his suicide is the thing that that is the marker of the legitimate angel credibility of Kurt Cobain. You know, John Lennon is frozen in time because of what happened to John Lennon. The mythology is perfect. Now, how the much... The mythology of Kurt Cobain is perfect. How much of, of Steve Albini coming in to the Nirvana Sessions... Do you think that that do you think that that changed the course for where they were going? Do you think that that sped up Kurt's demise? Do you think that that kind of let him run yeah. run free and just do what he wanted to do at that point? No, I think that the, the the beauty of the Steve Albini thing is that they got to do exactly what they wanted to do, right? Is that they actually you know, the, the the sadness about Cobain is that really, ultimately, he got everything that he wanted. Like, he got enough of the success to be such a huge star that he could then make In Utero. Like, In Utero, in Utero is a really difficult record. Albini's the perfect guy to make In Utero. You know, Albini is not the dude. I mean, fucking Butch Vig wasn't even the guy that really made, you know, fucking... Never, never mind. You know, he recorded it. The mixes are Andy Wallace. 
Yeah. You know, when I do the Nirvana session, I play the fucking, I play the Andy Wallace mix against the, the, the Butch Vig mix. And I always ask the question of the audience, like, would it have been as huge a hit if it had been the Butch Vig mix? And it's quite possible that it wouldn't because it wouldn't have torn out of the speakers the way that, you know, the, the, the Nevermind fucking Andy Wallace mixes ripped out of the speakers and could hold themselves up against every, you know, every single one of the hair metal bands that Bob Rock was fucking producing. They could sit right next to that without sounding like an indie record. You know, the Butch Vig mixes sound like an indie record. It's raw. It's exactly, you know, like, it's exactly what you would have expected for the band that made Bleach. But, you know, with all the cred that they had when they came out of Nevermind, they got to go and make that record with Steve Albini. You know, it's a real sadness that Cobain got, you know, he's he's the ultimate, you know, be careful what you wish for. But, you know, the thing is that I don't know if it was ultimately the fame that really killed him or if it was the stomach pains, really. You know, I think that if you if you live your whole life with chronic, chronic pain, you know, I, I one of my guys in my Burning Man camp, my old Burning Man camp was a doctor and he was and he would talk about a friend of ours who has Crohn's disease. And he was saying, you know, if you're a doctor for long enough, you realize that or you you, you don't realize, but you become aware of the fact that that diseases have personalities and he looked at our friend who had Crohn's disease and he was like he is Crohn's disease like his personality is the suffering of Crohn's disease Cobain's suffering with this horrible stomach affliction that the only thing that could ultimately numb that fucking pain was heroin and you know the 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 numb the pain of the heroin and numb the pain of the fucking success that is far beyond what your human brain is fucking programmed for. Nobody's for, nobody is fucking prepared for that level of societal fucking importance. Do you think, I mean, the only person, sorry, go ahead. Well, do you think that that's why Lane Staley took a little bit longer to fall to heroin essentially? Cause he didn't have that extra, extra pain on top of it all. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you've experienced anyone in your life who has a heroin problem, uh, it's a ticking fucking time bomb. You know, anyone who gets on heroin and then gets off of it is either going to live or they're going to (laughs) die. Like, without, you know, like, I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say, but they're either going to live until they die or they're going to die of a heroin overdose. So people in recovery are, are one, one stress point away from getting back on the, like I have a friend of mine who is a reformed heroin addict. And one day we just fell into a conversation about heroin and we started talking about the high of it. And he's been clean now for probably 20 years. And he looked at me and he was like, uh, we should probably stop talking about this because if we continue to talk about it, I'm going to want to go and shoot up. So that, you know, that is a powerful, awful, awful demon. And, you know, Lane had his own pain. Lane had, every, you know, had his own, you know, that's the thing that sucks about Lane Staley is that that's a dude who, who could have survived his own fame because he wasn't Kurt Cobain. None of those guys were, you know. Chris Cornell wasn't Kurt Cobain. Like, none of them carried the pressure of being Kurt Cobain. So all of them could have survived the fucking heroin thing because it wasn't built of the same horror of the 
of the Kurt Cobain version of it. You know, drugs are shitty. Heroin is a shitty drug. It's an awful drug. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it saps you of everything. The only dudes that could do fucking heroin and continue to maintain, by all accounts, are the jazz guys from back in the day. Because that's what they needed. Heroin is not a creative drug. Neither is cocaine. Terrible. Mushrooms and LSD, man. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor prescribes. <laughs> well, I want to get political for a moment. The 1968 election and Nixon's conservative rhetoric can be attributed to the influencing the, the directors there in the 1970s, creating some of the greatest films ever made. Thatcher and Reagan led the world to punk music. Bush and Bush Jr. led a certain rage within the music scene. But now we're living under Trump, one of the most dangerous leaders in modern memory. Why are we not seeing the effects of Trump in the art world? And why are we not seeing an uprising from artists to... Uh, just do their part and get to the point? Well, this is a very good question, my friend. Um, and I think that the answer is, the answer is painful. And I think that the answer is that art has lost its power in culture. And that is just something shitty that we're going to have to come to fucking terms with uh, is that, you know, because of the fact that we don't have these national swings of, you know, we'll, I will, I will make the prognostication bold as it is that we'll never see another Nirvana. We'll never see anyone come in and take over culture like that ever again, simply because culture is so siloed. Um, and the, I think the only way you do is for culture to realize that it's siloed and to look for national voices. Um, I think that the, that, you know, this is why the, you know, like each, each time music has done the thing that it does or art has done the thing that it, that it has done, it has done it because it wasn't done prior. You know, music was used as a weapon in the 60s in order to get people to wake up. Well, what happens? Where are all those fucking baby boomer, you know, fucking hippie douchebags now? They're assholes. They've, they've, none of the promises of the hippie movement came fucking true. None of the things that Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Joan Baez and Neil Young were singing about and all that, none of that Woodstock shit came to fruition. Those assholes went into management. You know, like, they, they became everything that they said they, they abhorred. And... You know, the same is true. I think, you know, Generation X is, there's a great book called, called Gen X Save the World, which is talking about how basically Gen X is a sleeping giant that, that will hopefully eventually be awoken once we get into our 60s to really start to, you know, because we've got to get these old fucks out of the way so we can actually start to make some differences happen. Um, we're just held in place because the old gray hairs, I mean, look at the fucking presidential candidates on the left. They're fucking 90-year-old men. Like, what the fuck? You know, like, it's brutal. We don't have a voice. We're still fucking, you know, like, suddenly, you know, Alexandria fucking Ocasio-Cortez is a powerful voice on the left. She's a fucking millennial. Where are the Gen X voices? Hopefully, once the kids all get out of the house, we can get some fucking work done. So I think that, you know, one of the problems with culture as we, as we have now is that music doesn't have the, the powerful voice that it used to have because it said so many things and none of them came to fucking be. 
You know, like where's you know, like Rage Against the Machine is touring again because it's a fucking election year because there's nobody else raging against the fucking machine. Like, where is the politically fucking, where's the, the hip-hop that's fucking, you know, where's Jay-Z talking about what's going on? Where are these powerful, influential voices in hip-hop? Where's their anger? You know, there isn't any. Like, I don't understand, you know, why they're so fucking quiet. They were quiet during the Obama fucking presidency. Like, you know, like, they, they the run-up to it. Like, musicians have, you know, they've, they've, they're suddenly everyone's a fucking brand and it's more important than saying things. And that's a really uncomfortable. And, and I think that, you know, the, the people now who are making the fucking, you know, the, the cultural movement in art is now happening from fucking comedy. So do you see the daily show? Do you see stand up as maybe being the next revolution in terms of art? Um, No, I don't know. I don't know if revolution is necessarily ever... I don't know if revolution is, is going to happen in that way. I think that... Um, I think somebody will harness the technology, right? Somebody will harness fucking TikTok and turn it into a thing. Or somebody will harness Instagram Live and turn it into a thing. Like, there's, there's, there's going to have to be... You know, because that's also it, like technology and art moving in that way. You know, it's the 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 two work in concert almost. Um, and now we, you know, we're sort of like waiting to see what happens because there isn't a voice because nobody is getting their information from the same place. There used to only be three fucking TV channels. Now, now there's hundreds of TV channels that aren't even on TV anymore. Now this fucking Quibi, which is a disaster of a thing, but, you know, that's, you know, fucking 10-minute blip verts. Like, what the fuck is going on? So I think that we're, you know, we're waiting for the dust to settle. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens coming out of this shift that's occurring with this fucking quarantine thing. Like, what are, you know, I was just listening to the Greg Fitzsimmons podcast, and he was talking about, like, what are they even going to talk about coming out of this thing? It's like, do you have, do you aim for COVID free sets or do you have to do a mandatory 10 minutes on quarantine and then come out of it? You know, like there was a great meme that was going around that was like, no, bro, I don't want to hear your fucking quarantine record. And one of my friends made a song called, I want to be quarantined with you. And I'm like, no, what are you doing? Like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm hoping that when we come out of this thing, the thing that I'm doing will actually be become a, you know even more important be careful what you wish for but it will become more important because of the fact that it won't have anything to do with quarantine that people will be able to come and simply disappear into a time tunnel about the songs and there won't be references to the current situation it'll just be you know the thing that it was always going to be which was to talk about this beautiful music and uh, an uh, interesting and different way than people who discussed it prior. So I think that, you know, we, we have to wait and see what happens with this thing and what it does. But the musicians certainly aren't going to fucking, I don't, like, where's the anti-Trump stuff? Don't hear it. Where's, you know, like, baby, the fucking, 
the rage public enemy thing. Maybe they tried to do it, but it didn't. There was no national anthem of you know change the fucking world. It's well, even the last time, like four years ago, it was like I remember KRS One was the only guy like really going for it. Everybody else like yeah. kind of stepped back. Nobody was even trying, and then yep. and the KRS One didn't even break through. Nope. And this is you know this is what happens when you don't, as we say, like you don't have an MTV like we used to have. You know, like that people forget, like MTV was a was the driving force, man. That that made that made or broke bands. I mean, Billy Squires' entire career was destroyed by one music video. You know, that's the truth. Christopher Cross's career was completely destroyed because he couldn't make music videos. (laughs) You know, like MTV was hugely powerful, man, hugely powerful. And we don't have that anymore. We don't have this single outlet that makes everyone, you know, wake up to an idea or a philosophy or, or you know, USA for Africa. Like, we don't have that. They have that fucking... That concert for America or whatever, whatever, the COVID fucking concert two weeks ago. Did anybody watch that? Yeah, I know nobody that I, watched that. <laughs> nobody that watched it. You know, and I think, you know, and it's like part of what we're going through is also people, it seems to me, you know, like there's a, there's a backlash against the voices of celebrities telling us that everything's going to be okay and we're all in this together because they're stuck in, I'm stuck in a fucking studio apartment and I've got fucking, you know, David Geffen giving me fucking good luck messages from his $90 million yacht. We're not all in this together. So I don't even know if, if people want the advice from the rich and fucking shameless anymore. So, you know, where's our Bob Dylan? I don't know. Is he, he might be writing it right now in quarantine. Somewhere in Ohio. I would say let's hope, I but... Hope. <laughs> I hope. I doubt it. <laughs> well, get, getting to break down stuff for years as you've done, even when you were just doing the naked vocals on Alice and everything else, has there just been like a... And then going to sessions now... Has there been a holy shit moment where you've re-looked at an artist or re-looked at a song and you've really just got a complete new light on it? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the one that is, you know, like I, get, I, ask, I get asked to do private sessions for um, folks and, and also corporate events and they'll say, you know, pick the song. And if I have a choice to pick a song every time, it's going to be Bob Seger's Hollywood Nights, which is absolutely, you know, I I went into that one because I only had two or three to choose from. So I was like, fuck it. You know, Hollywood Nights is kind of cool. I thought the the, the story that I knew of it was dope. And then when I dug into it and got to really hear the story and, and learn the story, it became even more beautiful. And then one listen through of that vocal and it is absolutely fucking extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's, it's my favorite vocal that's ever been recorded. Why? So, uh, because uh, it's entirely meant. It is a, it is a dude singing 
and channeling his experiences through the the fictitious narrative of a character who represents himself and a relationship with Cheryl Teagues. Okay. And it's, it's sung with more feeling and more emotion than it's it's breathtaking, man. Like, it brings me to tears. I mean, I've done it fucking probably 25 times at this point, and every single time it brings me to tears. I mean, it's absolutely, it's a, it is a, it's, it's, it's flawless. And the story is flawless. The performances are flawless. Everything is, it's, it's flawless. And it's, it, believe me, there was nobody more surprised that, that Bob Seger, you know, made that happen for me than me. I did not know that going into it. So would that be the song or the session that you would most have wanted to sit, th- sit in with? Or is there like an artist, it doesn't matter when, any, any time in, in the course of history, is there one artist that you would like to have just sat in with or worked with or just been there beside and seen them work? Oh, fucking Bohemian Rhapsody. She's been there for that must have been unbelievable. Just the full recording session? Yeah, I mean, just the, the whole, that whole, you know, having Freddie walk into the studio and, and look at everyone and say, I've got this song, and then basically get the entire thing out of his head to come out of the speakers. And then the density of that thing and the amount of work that it took and the length of time and the amount of money that they spent, I mean, and the mix of it, the whole thing must have just been absolutely just gobsmacking to have been there for any of it because it's just, it is a singular achievement. Singular achievement. Now, I want to end... On on a introspective note, just for everybody else as, as well. But are there really any artists that have blown you away in the last few years? Films, albums, bands, books, doesn't really matter. Has anything stood out to you and just made you go like, "Holy shit"? Um. Yeah, I think that musically. Uh, discovering the Japan droids was fucking, was, was like a holy shit moment. Uh, I think that the, um, that last, you know, the records that have been my records of the year, like so far, if, if nobody beats the car seat headrest album, that route, that album is fucking ridiculous. The third eye blind album from last year is fucking crazy. Uh, as far as film, I don't. I'm not really an engager in film. I thought the Joker was was a, an unbelievable thing to have pulled off, but I'm I'm more impressed with television. I think that Chernobyl was such a fucking just an accomplishment. Do, do you um, just think that film is dead at this point? I don't think it's dead. I just think that you know, like to be to be trapped in the format of trying to make something and, you know, like 90 minutes that can, that is, you know, that's why like going to the movies now to me is like the equivalent of going to Cirque du Soleil, which is why everybody goes and sees these huge, big 
fuck off explosion films. Um, you know, I think that that it's 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 nice to go and see a 1917 on a big screen, but then you go to see a 1917 on a big screen, and then there's some fucking dick stain checking his fucking phone, and there's an asshole fucking talking. Like at least when you go to see an MCU movie, it's so loud and fucking you know enormous and overwhelming that you can't possibly distract yourself from it. But I also think that being, you know, locked into trying to do an entire arc in 90 minutes when you could do that arc over, like, Chernobyl as a fucking film would have sucked. Chernobyl as a nine-part, ten-part fucking miniseries is incredible. Well, do you you agree with Nicholas Winding Refn when he says that, like, essentially miniseries are bullshit and this new wave of television is bullshit and we are just living in a time of content. It doesn't really matter. No. You don't agree no, with that's, that? That's, okay. a fucking, that's, a, that's a fucking stupid thing to say. <laughs> what an ignorant human being that guy is. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No way, dude. And that guy clearly hasn't seen fucking Billions. He hasn't seen Secession. He hasn't watched Chernobyl. He hasn't watched fucking Better Call Saul. I mean, these are like... These are, these are ways of telling that. Like, you couldn't... If you went to somebody and said, Hey, I gotta fuck... Let's go to the, let's go to the multiplex. There's a 10-hour movie that we want to see. You'd tell that person to go fuck themselves. <laughs> but if you sat with your friend and binged watch 10 hours of a TV show on Netflix, that makes complete sense. Well, you just made a 10-hour movie. And you got people to absorb it as a 10-hour movie. So you get to do a nuanced narrative for 10 hours that you would have prior had to fucking squeeze into 90 minutes. Why the fuck would you not want to spend 10 hours? Like, Chernobyl was absolutely fucking relentless in how good it was. And, you know, I've, I met the director of that thing, and I was just like, bro, what the fuck? That shit is a, he's a deuce from fucking, he's a Scandinavian dude. And uh, old video music director and ad guy, and he'd done a couple of episodes of some regular of some other TV shows, but this is his first series, and that thing is just fucking epic. From the level of detail to the production design to the amount of time spent to the performances, the conceit of like you know they asked him like you know why why didn't everybody why did everybody speak in their own accent, and he was like because to have everybody speak in fake Russian accents would have made it so obvious that it was fake. So to have them just speak in their own natural accents, eventually you just didn't care anymore. You just watched an unbelievable performance. What a fucking, such a smart choice. Because any in the hands of any other fucking meathead director, you would have had people pretending to be Russian with shitty Russian accents. Comrade, why don't you come and out of Chernobyl's like get the, the fucking all of these choices were so brilliant man and if you haven't watched fucking Succession Succession is fucking crazy good Succession Billions is, is kind of fucking genius is genius like this fucking asshole who just said that stupid quote like watch fucking watch Succession and tell me that the fucking you could have told any of those seasons in an hour and a half the, no way. The, the fact that Succession gets you in as a drama and keeps you there as a comedy 
and it's so complex beyond comedy or drama will ever be. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Succession is fucking brilliant. It's brilliant. I mean, the fucking interplay between those characters, the, 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 the what's his name? Albert Finney or whoever the fucking main dude is. The, the, the that guy, fucking, it's not Albert Finney, it's the other guy, the two, the two that get mistaken for Albert Finney. But, but, but Brian Cox. Man, Kieran, Brian Cox, Kieran fucking, uh, what's his name? Culkin. We call it Kieran Culkin. Jesus, dude. Yeah. The guy is fucking a revelation, as is fucking Bob Odenkirk in fucking Better Call Saul. Do you... Better Call Saul is well, blinding. Do, do you feel that Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad? Yes, absolutely. Okay, now I'm, now I'm curious. I'm, why? <laughs> because I think that the thing for with me for Breaking Bad was, Breaking Bad was obviously brilliant, don't get me wrong, but Breaking Bad to me was a, was people playing characters and they were great. But Better Call Saul, like the pacing of it is so much slower. The nuances of the characters are so much more nuanced, if I can say something really stupid. But the like fucking the the Michael the fucking killer guy, his whole fucking story with the kid and the and the daughter and the like we're slowly starting to find out like the death of the son and all that kind of shit like the way that the story is being rolled out is so much more careful and nuanced and to me it now makes Breaking Bad look rushed and a little bit cliched in certain ways uh not to take away anything that it accomplished and and you know brian cranston and and but to me the nuances and subtleties that whole fucking season with with the brother living in the house with the fucking magnetic field thing and all that stuff get the fuck out of here man like we've been on such a fucking journey with better call Saul. i mean if you look at where we are now from where we started the amount of information and the nuanced development of Bob Odenkirk into fucking better call from, from the, you know, the, the first guy into this Saul Goodman character. And we're still not even there yet. Like we haven't turned the final corner. How did, how did you feel about uh, El Camino and just Vince Gilligan going back to that story? Eh, cute. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't need it. I didn't have any questions that needed to be answered. I kind of, I supported it just because, you know, Vince had done such a fucking, you know, like everybody passed on that show, which is why it ended up being on AMC. And then he pretty much puts AMC on the map with that thing. You know, I think that, you know, I was much more impressed with Mad Men. I thought Mad Men was infinitely more impressive i'm, I'm not uh, gonna lie i've always felt mad men was a better show than breaking bad but yes but i think you know like that's why right is that is that that is breaking bad is the kind of thing that the gen pop is gonna love and mad men is a nuanced fucking subtle thing and better call soul is even more nuanced and subtle than fucking mad men was so you know, I'm just stoked that they're making Better Call Saul. I'm really fucking happy that people love 
fucking Mad Men. You know, I'm watching fucking Westworld right now, and that show can fucking go fuck itself. Like, it's traveling so far up its own asshole that it can't even see fucking daylight anymore, which is the worst thing that can happen to a, to a show. Um, but, you know, I do think that that Better Call Saul is part of this new pantheon where storytelling is really allowed to stretch itself out. And you don't have to have action and adventure in every single episode and huge, you know, fucking, you don't have to have a, a fucking, uh, a, any sort of cliffhanger. You don't have to have a cliffhanger. Have you watched Dave, by the way? Uh, that with sounds real. What, 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 what is Dave? Dave is a fucking half hour comedy about little Dicky, the rapper. Oh, okay. No, I watched like one or two episodes, but I haven't like full got into it. You got to go full into it. It's, okay. It's fucking, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, have you watched Fleabag? Oh yeah. Fle- what pisses me off about Fleabag and let's actually get into it is the fact that she only made what? 12 episodes and now she just, it's done. I'm sorry. It's yeah, too fucking. Piss you off. That shouldn't piss you off. That's that's how that's exactly the way you do it. That's the way that the English people. That's the way we've always done. It. I agree with that. The English, op- the English Office was fucking two seasons and out. That's what you do, man. You don't go back and beat that thing to fucking shit. She's like, I'm out after two fucking seasons, and I'm going to revisit this character when this character turns fifty. Yeah, I amazing. I, I appreciated okay. more that she said I'm gonna go back when when this character's fifty. But fuck, was that a great show? I I will say. Yeah, but the reason. Yeah, the, the, the that was absolutely a great funny. show. Is that she got out of it when she needed to? Because if she'd done a third season that wasn't as good, everyone would say, "Well, the first two seasons were great, and the third season was kind of bugged." See, Once I, you have that fucking the second season with the goddamn priest breaking the fucking fourth <laughs> wall with her. That thing. Once you've done that, you don't need to make another fucking season. You need no explanation. But that book is a that, that TV show is is a a perfect book is what that TV show is. I guess the only reason that I felt that way has to do with I didn't know that I was in for the final as watching the second season until after I had watched it. I feel like it is like needed that little bit of information going into that second season that this was going to be it. Well, at the end of it, what more do you need to know at that final episode, even if you didn't know it was the final episode? True. Okay. What more do you need to know? (laughs) She literally walks away from the fucking, the, she walks away from you at the end of it. She's done. She's moved beyond all of the fucking trauma She's moved beyond everything. It's total real life. You don't need a fucking happy ending and the, the fucking her and the fucking dude get together, blah, 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 blah. You don't need any of that. What you need is the fucking truth, which is that you've just got to find the fucking good in each moment. And she, that moment when she fucking walks away and says, I don't need you anymore, like, holy shit, dude. Oof. You can't go back. You can't go back. I, I got okay. I'm I'm at your mercy. I agree. Well, what do you think about really? stuff like Atlanta? I haven't watched enough of Atlanta just because I watched a couple seasons, a couple of shows, and it, I think he's fucking great. I mean, that's somebody. So there you go. There's a voice um, who that fucking video that he did 
to that song, the, the the America song, whatever it was. That this is America. Like Donald, yeah, like the, that fucking thing. That's just, that's about as profound a uh, 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 you know, like a protest song as we've had in in years. But unfortunately, the song itself wasn't that great. It it really was the video that sold it. The video was mind blowing, and the fact that it's fucking childish Gambino, it's fucking great. But the song itself was not a song where you walked away singing a hook. You didn't, you know, like that's it's that's the difficulty with that particular art form is that it is hard to unless you're using a pre-existing hook. It's hard to have a, a hip hop song that you walk away singing a fucking hook from, unless they've you know stolen one from a pre-existing hook like I'm coming out, like that sort of thing. Um, but I haven't watched enough of Atlanta. I just get to the point where you know there's a lot of shows that I've backed out of just because there's so much good material. That if you don't get me within two or three, and I thought that Atlanta was cool, but there was other shit to watch. Well, I would uh, like to thank you, and this was fantastic. Thank you for being on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Make sure to continue hearing Christian James Hand on LA's 95.5 KLOS and on the website, thesessiononair.com. Until next time, this concludes our broadcast day.